Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Rita J. King, who's the EVP for business development at Science House. She's an entrepreneur, futurist, writer, artist, and jewelry designer. She created the Imagination Age concept with the main skill being applied imaginations. She has served as innovator in residence at IBM and a futurist at NASA Langley's Think Tank. Thanks so much for joining us on The Deep Dive. How are you today? I am great, and I also am uh, made in Brooklyn. See, this is really the reason why I wanted you to be on the show. Despite, I don't blame you. Despite all the talk about science and futurists and all the rest of it, it's, all, it's only about Brooklyn. I mean, you know, when you come from Brooklyn, that's true. That is absolutely true. The planet called Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> I have a, a lot of questions to get to. I always do. So listeners are tired of me saying that at the start of every show. Um, but nonetheless, I want to really get into the very first thing is for you to tell us what is Science House. Um, because the, the space itself, the idea behind Science House, I think, deserves its own attention. So that's a perfect place for us to start. Great. I'm at Science House right now while I'm speaking with you. Uh, Science House is a cathedral of the imagination in Manhattan. And every inch has been designed uh, for people to come and let down their guard and do their best thinking together. So as you can imagine, for the last five months, it's been very strange at Science House because we don't have the groups that we normally have. And we've been working remotely, but we have an imagination room. Uh, we have a creative library. We have a celestial salon, uh, the secret garden on the roof where I am the botanist in residence. And you know, we're, we've been working with teams remotely. It's been a very interesting time, and I miss having people at Science House, and I look forward to the day when they can come back. And it's interesting because you, you have a physical location that is much more in than just what it is as a physical location. There is an entire philosophy behind why Science House was created. You've been a big part of that. How have you been able to manage the need and the desire to create a very curated physical space under the confines of COVID-19 as we sort of navigate through this pandemic? The space has always been a reflection of the mindset. And when people come here, they often say they feel like they came across a threshold and that they entered into something that shocked them. It's very inconspicuous from the outside. And we bring that to everything we do. And our main business is helping bring clarity to purpose, which sounds pretty simple. But the truth is, as you know, there's a lot of reasons why purpose can be obscured, especially uh, when people are working in, in large groups and large organizations. And so there's been a huge demand among our clients to do Ironically, what they hired us to do for them when things were good. Now, the crisis has laid bare the need to bring clarity to your purpose. And we do that in a variety of ways. We focus on meetings, for example. And one of the things we're finding now is that you know meetings were problematic prior to COVID. And now people are mimicking what they did that didn't work before. I saw a study that the workday is 48 minutes longer now. And people are in meetings, you know, all day long. And so that's one of the things we're trying to help clients work on is if, how do you know you're in the right place at the right time? How do you get the right information to the right person at the right time? And how do you focus on a shared mission so everyone can align their work to that mission? And the line between work and home has been completely obliterated for most people now and so it's more important than ever to really focus on what matters and apply imagination to building a future together. You said so many things in that statement. And, you know, one of my challenges right now is going to be to, to stay 
also on track, but also I want to go through some of the pieces that you mentioned. One of them being that people talk about Science House and they will mention it being like they've entered through a, a portal. Mm-hmm. And that's language during during the pandemic, not exclusively during the pandemic, but expressly during this this time that has come up a lot. One of my intellectual heroes, Arundhati Roy, she is she wrote an essay during this period talking about how the pandemic yes. is a portal. So I, I want to examine that because it seemed like you the space has been designed with that intentionality even before this, and now that has become more important. So kind of talk to me about this idea of portals, because it it ties to transformation, right? It does. And even your mention of Arundhati Roy gave me chills. I've always loved her. And I actually did read that piece too. I do agree with that philosophy. And I've always believed in that philosophy. And I, I often feel like an outsider in life, like an outlier Um, I think this is one of the reasons I became a cultural anthropologist. I'm an ethnographer. I study culture, really just interested in culture, looking at people. And I think because I have um, an outsider, outlier view, I look at at groups of people and I can sort of see the contours. It's almost like I have synesthesia for people in a way. And I'm really very focused and always have been on creative pairs. So rather than working in groups, I like to work in pairs. And even with clients, I tend to pair. And then the pair brings back to the group what they have discovered or created. It's much easier to learn from people in pairs. Pairs find their own chemistry. As soon as you start bringing a lot of people into a a room, our, our brains or into a process, our brains are hierarchical. And as amazing as our brains are, they're also kind of lazy and they like to conserve energy. And so it's a lot to overcome what I would consider the inertia of groups. And so many of our systems are just mass scale experiments in a continuation of something that didn't really work before. And it's very hard to reinvent them because so many people are involved in these systems. Whereas in pairs, people can really make progress. They find their own chemistry together. And I think pairs get a lot further and they sort of, I don't want to say circumvent the rules, but they pairs have an intuitive understanding of systems and give each other permission to go beyond the edges of those systems. I think that's where a lot of the progress gets made. So you asked about portals. Yes, Science House was intentionally designed that way nine years ago now. And even the sign on the door, you can tell. So there's a tiny little sign that says Science House. Okay. It's a little brass engraved and it was deliberately done that way. You can tell the culture of a group at the door if you watch through the window because they stare at that little sign like, can this really be Science House? It's so small. I, you know, they expected it to be, but it clearly says Science House. So even right at the door, I watch them come and I can tell by whoever is the first person who just kind of ignores the noise and rings the bell and they come in a lot about the group. And then in the imagination room, for example, we have these puzzles and every single time a group comes to the imagination room, someone breaks this puzzle and it's, it's wooden and it's magnetic. And so if you pick it up, it crushes in your hand and then it sort of shatters all over the floor. Okay. So it's by design so, that it's going to break. Yeah. So the way people react to the breaking of this also tells you everything you need to know. Some people break it and they say, okay, I'm going to figure it out and put it back together. And they pick up all the pieces and they could sit all day trying to figure out this thing and put it back together. Some people figure it out. Some people don't. Some groups help each other. Some groups apologize 7,000 times for breaking it, even though we keep telling them it's okay, it's by design. So you can tell a lot about group dynamics by a lot of the things that we've set up in Science House for people to play with. You know, you mentioned this idea of pairs and using, I guess, a, a smaller amount of people or, or organizations in order to break through some of this inertia in us having been used to doing things in one way and kind of continuing on that road. However, we are faced with like increasing complexity. Are, are those two ideas in not conflict with one another, but do you have to navigate around the 
preference to have fewer amount of inputs with the complexity, the innate complexity of many of the challenges that we're, that we're dealing with. All of my work centers on complex systems in some way. So before Science House, I had my own company for a few years. Prior to that, I was an investigative journalist and I focused on things like the nuclear industry and the relationship between corporations and government. I actually, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I, I love complex systems and I love trying to figure out how to distill them down to their essence so that you can actually find the point in the system that you can transform in order to transform the system instead of thinking about the system and its enormity. The way pairs work in that, it's actually very fascinating because when you get, let's say, I'll give you an example. I work on large software projects, massive software projects, trying to help 150, 250 coders and their managers and directors and VPs stay on track. It's so easy to get off track because of the complexity of the system. But when you pair people, the output of the pair gets put back in. So for example, we use model meetings, the framework we created for meetings at Science House, and I developed a pairing strategy through that prism. And very often people think it's literally about meetings when they hear that it's model meetings, but it's about the essence of business and systems itself. So I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. Let's say you and I are members of an organization that has to deal with this mass scale, very complex modernization, uh, which many of our clients are dealing with modernization of their software, but they have monolithic outdated uh, systems that they need to, for example, getting off mainframes and getting into the cloud would be a classic example. It's not that you and I would pair and stay in a vacuum. We would pair first to learn. So you and I might go out on a fact-finding mission and interview a bunch of people in the organization to understand the complexity of some of the pieces that we're facing. But when we report that back in, we have the additional responsibility of distilling the essence of what we've learned so that we could get the right information to the right person at the right time. So the pairs then become a team that gets responsible for generating an asset, if you will. And then that asset gets fed back into the process. And then another team can grab that baton and do something with it. Rather than trying to get 15 people in a room and get consensus and get buy-in and pre-socialize an idea, and then you get all the politics and the bureaucracy and the hierarchy and everything else, it's a much faster way to learn and implement what you've learned. In that response, one of the things that, that really jumped out to me, A, I love the process as, as a whole, right? But one of the things, and also as a practitioner, as, as a strategist, what, what I found as a challenge is organizations have identified a problem or challenge, and then they're looking for not a plug and play solution, but they're definitely looking for you to start to ideate a solution before you've done what you've termed learning and what I call like inquiry, right? Like sometimes I'm like, I need to take a step back and really understand what's going on here before we can start to think about solutions. Have you also found resistance or or challenges where people just want you to fix me, you know, rather than doing that sort of learning and inquiry that seems to me to be so essential to the process. And so I'm curious what you've experienced. It is very essential. I also call it discovery. So you're discovering things that are sort of hidden, right? And yes, people, especially in public companies, they're under a huge amount of pressure to think in terms of the next quarter. And a lot of companies have a fundamental misunderstanding of risk and they miss a lot as a result of that and end up having to start over. I've seen that so many times where there's an obvious flaw in the plan, but it's like, let's just keep working and eventually it'll just work itself out. That discovery process is so critical. I often will hear people say, oh, you know, so-and-so is in the weeds. Well, the weeds, you know, the devil is in the details. There's a reason why that... So, To me, it's a constant balance between learning, but distilling the essence of what you've learned because you don't have time 
to explain all of the granular details to someone. And so there's always this inherent frustration, I feel, particularly now that every company is a tech company, but a lot of business people are not technologists. And so engineers and coders get very frustrated sometimes trying to explain the details to a business person who their eyes glaze over. They just want results. But a lot of business people who are not technologists also feel like they have some kind of fairy dust they sprinkle that IT sprinkles and then this thing they wanted comes out. The complexity is often very, very hidden and, and would be startling if people realized how complex it is to update some of these systems, for example. We're really getting to the point where the complexity is simply beyond the ability of our human brains to parse through. And I feel like we're at a crossroads where our, our creations and the technologies we're creating to help us think through complexity are not sufficiently mature yet, although be careful what you wish for. We don't have the computing power to think through the implications of some of these systems. So we're in a weird place right now in humanity and, and in business and in society. I joke with another friend and um, someone that I've, I've interviewed before on this show and in a previous show about our capacity to understand things. And I admit I am a little bit of a Luddite. You know, anyone who knows me knows that. <laughs> but nonetheless, I wonder if what we're missing is let's just comprehension and critical thinking skills. It, I feel like sometimes I see things and what confounds me is the inability to not so much deal with the technology, but deal with just basic comprehension of the written word and ideas and taking them to the next step. So when you talk about risk, I'll kind of zero in on that because I was a trader, right? I worked at Goldman Sachs and my goal was as a trader is to manage risk. It's one of the main parts of the job. And what I find putting aside that financial services piece of it and just thinking about risk in general is that we don't assess risk correctly. We don't look at what's the opportunity cost of thinking quarter by quarter versus doing the type of work that you and others do, which is to ideate out further, right? Mm -hmm. Which might not have a quarterly impact on your earnings in that moment, but could mean the difference between the obsolescence of your business or your service for many, many years, right? Like what's the risk of not understanding that? Like, how do you, have I captured something or, yeah. or what do you think about that? So one of the things Jeff Bezos has done is send out with every shareholder letter, the first shareholder letter from 1996 that he ever sent out to Amazon investors, making it crystal clear that they are focused on the long term. And one of the reasons their competitors have completely missed them as a foe is because they cannot conceptualize what long-term thinking really looks like. And one of the things that Amazon does really well, although any system can be you know, corrupted and gamed, but they do this really well. They write six-page documents traditionally. So before you get a senior executive in the room, you have to demonstrate the viability of your idea in words the way you just described. Otherwise, how do I know it's worth my time? I need you to think it through in a critical way. So that critical thinking was embedded in the culture of Amazon to begin with. Now, I understand Amazon has grown tremendously. They're hiring very quickly. There's a lot of issues in different areas of the company with how they're treating people. I'm not, they're not perfect, but I'm just responding to your question mm -hmm. about the written word. It's pretty clear that they value the written word and that it has had huge business value for them. So you know, I'm a writer and I studied humanities and I'll tell you the, the, the one thing you learn studying humanities that is just glaringly absent from, from the mind of most technologists that I've known. And I know a lot of them and work with a lot of them. The downfall in a novel or a play or any tragedy, there's one common denominator. 
and it's hubris. It is always hubris, right? The big H. So when you, yeah, the big H. When you study, you know, the humanities, when you study literature, you realize hubris is the game killer. And yet, so many technologists and entrepreneurs and leaders just go barreling straight, you know, put the wings on and fly too close to the sun. Go ahead. We, we already know that the wax is going to melt, but you're not the first person who's tried this, but knock yourself out. I can already tell you as I watch you dash off with your little homemade wings, it is not going to end well. And we are in now the aftermath of many of the consequences of that failure to think ahead. And a lot of these companies have taken care of their employees ostensibly. And so now people are finally waking up like, wow, you know, maybe what we're doing isn't great for society, but, you know, the consequences of that are now coming to, to bite us. And finally, I would also say, you know, when you're writing software and you're using the agile software methodology, right? So agile is this iterative development. <laughs> you write these epics, they're called, right? And then from these epics, you refine them into features, they're called, and then stories. Now, this terminology suggests to me epics, right? It's like, if you study humanities, you know what an epic is. If you, you know what a feature, you know what a story is. But when you read these stories, they're often filled with jargon and just acronyms, and they are not stories. Now, you might argue, well, they're not literally meant to be stories, to which I say, don't call them stories then. Yeah, you know, come up with another them, term. Right. Call them jargon junkyards or something. I mean, they are stories. And anyone reading that story should be able to understand what it is you think you're building. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny to hear, you know, we're going back to this idea of history and English and you know, we should be giving these people Beowulf and other um, other long form narratives to be to better inform their ideas. It seems like the only thing that a lot of um, what I will broadly call you might call technologists, I'll call like Silicon Valley types, is is they've they cling to like this idea of like the Stoics and Aristotle like arguments, but everything else that happened during that time, they're totally disinterested in it. <laughs> I agree with you about Beowulf, and I'll say my friend Maria Devana Headley just wrote a translation of Beowulf, a modern translation that I would highly recommend. Okay. See, we, mm -hmm. we had a little mini drop even before we get yeah. to the drop drop, which is totally, totally cool. Earlier, when we were kind of doing our little pre-chat, you brought up this idea of invisibility, you know, kind of responding to, you know, how I talk about making the invisible, visible. And you kind of said that that was a, your slogan, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to leave some space. I want to talk about that because I had some notes down here to kind of talk about tangible versus intangible. And it kind of ties to this idea of what you call like the intelligence era. So that's a lot of stuff in there, but I want to give you an opportunity to talk about how you think about invisibility, how that might differ from intangible versus tangible and how maybe some or all of that connects to this this intelligence era so when i was a journalist and started transitioning to working with companies you know from the inside just understanding them and their culture i started realizing that no matter the industry they faced a similar challenge which is trying to jump out of the industrial era and land straight in the intelligence era. So I created a concept, a transitional concept in between, I call the imagination age. And in the industrial era, things were very tangible and heavy. You didn't necessarily know how to design an engine, but if you worked in a factory that produced them, at the end of the day, if you did your piece, an engine would come off the conveyor belt. So education was set up to cater to that mentality, you know, bell rings, we go to the next classroom. And it's very easy for our brains to make sense of industrial products and because they're visible, they're, you know, a ship is either sinking or floating, it, you know, things work or they don't work. It's very binary, right? And so the intelligence era, by a very sharp contrast, is 
and will be increasingly dominated by things like algorithms that are hidden and intangible, yet have huge impacts on society, insights from data. Where is that data coming from? What does it say about us? Where is it going? What, how is it going to shape society? Are, are, you know, are the data gathering mechanisms biased? Are we mimicking our own human biases in what we create? Or will our creations be smarter than us and able to overcome those biases? And to what end? What is that going to look like in society? And it's very difficult for our brains to think through this level of complexity. So industrial era, you know, the vast majority of people were factory workers. I'm not here to glamorize factory life, but the reality is you're at work or you're home. You didn't have a conveyor belt in your house that your boss can ping you and ask you to just, you know, make a couple more cars tonight. No, right? You were home. You punched in, you punched out. Many fewer people were managers in factories and a tiny sliver of the population owned those factories or those businesses or those companies that they became barons, you know, moguls. Now, a days, you can have like a teenage coder that can take down an entire system, right? Similar to happened recently with Twitter. I believe that that recent hack was a 17-year-old somewhere. So there's a disproportionate amount of power concentrated in the hands of a few in both cases. But our brains simply are incapable uh, for most people of making sense of intelligence era concepts. And so I created the Imagination Age as a way of thinking about a path from A to B, whether it's creating a business, whether it's you know figuring out a problem in society, complex problem, a simple problem, doesn't matter. It's the same technique. And what you do is you think about the tangible things on that path from A to B that you want to create, right? And then you try to think about the intangible things. Now, the trick here is our brains tend to gravitate toward the tangible things, even when they are outdated and completely irrelevant. We see them as more vivid and real, right? So if you have an outdated belief that has traditions wrapped around it, it seems more real and vital than something that you can't picture, even if it's better. So I started to create a discipline around really focusing on the intangibles and giving them life through critical thinking and making them more real in your imagination so that you could see them and modeling them for each other. At the same time, questioning your assumptions about these things that are so that feel so real and tangible because we latch onto them, we are hardwired to enforce the status quo. And so many of the things that we do are simply habitual and we don't stop and ask why. Do we have the ability to, or can we have the ability to tell better stories? You know, one thing that, that came to mind when you were telling your kind of this journey was the idea of money. This comes up a lot in this, you know, depending on when you listen to these, I just had a whole another conversation about money. But nonetheless, you know, money, to kind of use another ancient example, was once like a gold coin, right? Or a copper coin. And you went and, you know, maybe other local economies had their own money, right? Money wasn't always meant to be exchanged in different places. We're not going to go through a whole money thing. But my point is, is that cash money, physical money, it's very different from the way in which our credit and financialization systems work today, but yet people believe in money, even though money don't really exist, right? Like if, if we agreed on another thing, we would have another thing. The money is only worth something because someone says it's worth something, right? So how do, how do we tell better stories? Because the money story seems to be pretty good, even though it's kind of a shitty concept. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, when you think about money in the way you just described, an evolution away from coins or whatever, I mean, doubloons, whatever. Whatever, shells, you know, whatever the case may be. What we really need is a system so that people can contribute and survive. I mean, when you boil down a concept, it's like, what is the purpose that the money serves, right? But we always layer on all these other things because our brains are hierarchical. And so money has become 
very inextricably linked to status. And so when you're telling a better story, and I completely agree with you, in every way, every day, it's all about telling a better story. What is the story we want to tell? So I'll just give you one quick little kind of aside on this. I took a class one time about Native American tribes in the U.S., and I was assigned to Kwakutl. That was my... And so we had to do kind of a dramatic reenactment, make food, you know, make masks, whatever. The thing that interested me about Kwakutl was that... <sighs> barking. Oh, good. Barking is allowed on the show. We're in New... We're in oh, New good. Okay. It doesn't matter. The thing about the Kwakutl was they would give away their wealth as a sign of status, right? So every year, you know, the chief would give away blankets and copper and like destroy things to show the status of being in a position to be able to destroy things, okay? So that's a very different story than the story that we tell about money. What is money? What is it, right? I mean, things are getting so crazy in the United States that I'm sure I'm not the only person who wonders what would happen if like your bank accounts were just empty one day? I mean, they're just digital numbers. There's not actual money. It's not, you don't go to the bank and open the door and then my sack of money is, is sitting there, right? So it's a very strange system. And yet we have, you know, billions of people on planet earth who need to contribute and need to have their contributions somehow measured and, and compensated. But I would ask you like, Nobody opted into getting born. You know, we're not a we're not a customer pool. You know, I, I saw an article one day about the declining birth rates, and, and of course, the declining birth rates. Educated women are always blamed for this. Like somehow, a woman gets so highly educated that she realizes having kids is bad. That's not a direct line, right? But but here's the thing that the article said. The article said referred to these children as a diminished customer pool. Yeah. So money under the hood comes with a lot of other questions that immediately get asked. What is the purpose of money? What is the purpose of producing a customer pool? I mean, I think when we think of human beings as a customer pool, we're starting with a very faulty, weak premise for the story we're telling. So anyway, my, my reason I bring this up is to say, if we're telling a better story about money, we have to really understand what money is. What's the purpose of money? Why do we need money? Where does the money come from? If we said, let's do away with money tomorrow. Okay, where does the, who builds the infrastructure? Where does it, you know, there's a lot of things that, that come like horses on a maypole to that money question, but we are not applying nearly as much imagination as we could to this whole story about money. We're just not. Yeah, and the imagination piece is that venturing into the unknown, right? And, you know, I jotted down as you were talking and a little bit before this industrial age story, and then you go to the intelligence era, right? And you talked about bridging that gap. So one of the things, or I guess bridging the journey from one place to another. So I'm curious about how do we navigate in between spaces and not navigating in between spaces, but literally navigating in between spaces, right? Mm -hmm. So I picked imagination age as a con as a framework because I mean for a few reasons, but the reason I I really went double down on imagination is because it takes place in your mind, and so when you think about telling a better story, what is a story? It is a construct that our brains make up as a filter so that we can make sense of reality as we navigate through the world. We need something, otherwise the amount of data coming into our human brains would overwhelm us. And so people are born everywhere in the world with parents who have all sorts of different characteristics that the child then is slotted right into. And it's a unique and amazing thing that we all have in common is that we have no control over where we end up just appearing, okay? But from that, a story starts getting told to us immediately about what that means and who we are and what traditions do our families have in our societies and what do we value and what are we afraid of and what are we supposed to get excited about and all of these things. And those become our filters. But our brains are storytelling machines. And if we 
give ourselves more freedom and more discipline at the same time to improve the inputs that we give our storytelling machine, it starts telling us a better story about who we think we are. There are parts of our brains that light up when they see our own face, right? So think about us talking to each other and seeing each other. Normally in real life, I don't see myself when I'm talking to you. I only see you. Now I have to look at myself and see you. So your brain is just, it's exhausting, right? But our brains are storytelling machines. And when I was 25 years old, I was rudely confronted by the fact that I was not living up to my potential as much as I could. And that in order to accomplish this, and a person who is ostensibly older and wiser tells me, well, all you have to do is, you know, reinvent yourself, you know, emotionally, psychologically, physically. I was like, oh, that's all I have to do. Only. Yeah, only that. So I didn't know where to start, obviously. So I started by going to the bookstore and I wrote down the names of every person who had written a book about the brain. And I started systematically interviewing them about how much I could change and still be me. And I thought at that time that there was a consensus among experts about how the brain works. Not really. Okay. So what I took away from that process is you are your habits. You are your habits. And so I started really blocking and tackling on my habits and thinking about where do I spend the most time? What do I do physically? You know, so I started walking miles every day, which I still do. I started really getting very disciplined about my thoughts. I started getting very disciplined about how I spent my time and the things I assumed and the things I questioned. And I made a list of things about myself I wanted to change, things I felt like maybe I inherited from my parents that I didn't need to emulate, other things that I could emulate more. And it took me years chipping away at these things before I saw results, but I did get results. And so I know firsthand that the brain is a lot more elastic than we think it is. And so my real kind of mission in life is helping people understand that they can question their assumptions, even when it's painful, because most of the things we believe are just things that got put in our heads and turned into part of the story we tell ourselves. It's interesting that you go that route, because I think some of those things that we're told are kind of the micro things, meaning that they're family, friends, you know, kind of like our social group as we're kind of developing and growing. And then there are things that are sort of the macro things that are happening within our larger society, right? The fact that I'm West Indian guy, born in the U.S., immigrant family, lived in Brooklyn specifically at a certain time is going to impact the way in which I, I view the world, right? And the same for your particular experiences and any number of other nodes on this exchange. I say all that to say that one of the things that I've seen kind of bandied about, not just particularly as it, as it pertains to COVID, but the times that we happen to live in, right? They are constricting our ability to kind of think about the future because we're so much in survival mode. And so a lot of our future has been very dystopian based, right? Like zombie stuff and end of the world stuff. And that's always been there, but now it seems like there's a lot of it, right? So our our, our future, our thinking about the future is starting to reflect our angst about the present. And we're being robbed of our ability to reflect alternative futures, right? So I'm curious about how you think about that because I I see also in in my space, in in my world, you know, I'm a black guy, you know, people say, if only we didn't have to deal with racism all the time, right? Like how much more of our brain would be utilized to just think about other other stuff, right? So competing concepts, but I kind of put them all in one big mishmash, sorry. (laughs) <laughs> but curious oh. about just any any or all of that. <laughs> I hear what you're saying. I mean, I'm a woman who works in technology. Yeah. And so I hear what you're saying loud and clear. One of the things I find interesting is this notion of, you know, when you talk about racism and, and white privilege, for example, you know, this is something that I have been actively 
educating myself on for years because when I was a journalist, I worked in the Gulf Coast post-Katrina for six months in um, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And while I wouldn't say I had been wholly ignorant before then, the veil got ripped off my eyes for the Deep South and the realities that people face. And so I developed a deep relationship with a woman named Lila Cabell, who was the president of the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development. And, and she became my personal accountability partner on race. And I spent many years becoming re-educated, I would say, unlearning what I had learned in America because we are not properly educated in school about our own history. And so I, that's the context of grappling with this concept in my own life. And now seeing society having a collective awakening and also thinking about how many years it took me just to scratch the surface of my own ignorance. And so everyone has now the momentum of a collective awakening, but not the benefit of being able to think deeply over time. So, so I would argue there's the survival aspect right now. You, you, your question asked a couple of things, so I'm, I'm trying to bring them together. Anytime, you know, it's like Maslow's hierarchy. Anytime you're in a situation where your survival is at stake, you're, you are too exhausted to you know, pursue higher order thinking you know, when your survival's at stake. I mean, that's a whole different thing. I would argue that part of the problem is that when our survival was not at stake, we didn't put the elective time into deep thinking that we could have put into creating a deeper understanding that would benefit us collectively and, and individually and to start working toward better systems when we were not under duress. So I have often felt that we are rushing toward the next thing rather than taking the time to reflect. And I feel we often rely on, you know, sort of light bulb milestones in life for meaning rather than creating our own meaning and and learning for ourselves. And so now that we are sort of all in various states of lockdown and quarantine and fear and people's survival is at stake, it's a very different dynamic than it was when I felt like people were sleepwalking in this country, ignoring the realities of what this country is built on. And ultimately, we are an experiment. The American experiment is an ongoing experiment. And I think when you're doing an experiment, that means you have a lab or a, you know, a, <laughs> at a minimum, a database, some pool of data that you're working from. And I think the scientists were asleep at the wheel, if you will, in the American experiment and allowed a lot of things to happen that we should have guarded ourselves against. To me, freedom means that you have responsibility. And if you have responsibility, I don't know personally any more important thing to do with that responsibility than to disabuse yourself of your ignorance and to try and learn. Yeah, I think that's a great summation for my disjointed random question. So I I applaud you for pulling something special out of all that. Before we get to the last two segments of the show, which are off the dome and the drop, I want to really address how purposeful this use of the concept of imagination has, has been. Because I think in business and in broader sort of sciences, you know, people aren't always accustomed to that type of language being used, right? It's the same with myself. I walk into offices and I talk about love and magic and sometimes get the like, what are you talking about? Look, right? And I think imagination in, in some of the spaces that that you in um, live in and inhabit might get the same thing. So really focusing in on this concept of imagination how much of it was intentional to use that language? And are you optimistic that people are coming around to how important that is to creating viable futures? Since you brought up love and magic, I will say that, you know, I am very highly motivated by both love and magic. And I, I I applaud you for for introducing those words to clients because I could just imagine, you know, the reaction that you get for that. But but we have a house magician at Science House. And in fact, literal magic, I've always been a believer that when there's love and when there's magic, people are magnetically attracted to change rather than being dragged along because they're under duress and have to change. And so 
I believe that the highest calling of humanity is love. And I believe that love is a form of magic. And so I'm with you on that. Imagination, I think, sounds like it's in that category, but it really is a brain process. So, you know, I, I was interviewed for a book a few years ago and I was at the tail end. It's called The Imagination Gap. And the author, Brian Reich, had already interviewed everyone else except me. And so we had something to compare my thoughts on imagination to. And, and he told me that almost everyone else, if not everyone else, had this idea that imagination was whimsical and it was, you know, I mean, similar to love, right? Easy to fall in love, hard to sustain it, but that's where the magic happens, right? Showing up when things are not easy is where the magic happens, okay? So it's easy to dismiss imagination as a, as a whimsical thing that kids do, but if you get down with a kid and play at their level, they're pretty hardcore, right? They're using their imaginations to solve problems. They're not like jumping through the fairy dust. They're like, oh, you know, this is my imaginary friend, Freck John Freck, and it's the ninth time he's died in the last three days, and let's talk about, you know, so if you play with a kid on their terms, they take you to some pretty dark and interesting places because they're practicing problem solving. And then we systematically kind of beat that out of people in school and at work, and we become more and more cookie cutter and rigid in our thinking. But we're all born with imagination. And so the reason that I love imagination is because every single person is born with that capacity, regardless of the other circumstances that nobody opted into. I believe it is our highest calling as human beings to level the playing field so that every human being can develop their imagination, not because I think people should live in a fantasy land, but because I think imagination is a spectrum. And the spectrum goes from fantasizers on the one side to followers on the other side. Fantasizers are like the people who, yeah, go ahead, daydream in a hammock, it's fine, or come up with some huge idea. You don't have to worry about if it's feasible or who's going to pay for it. You're just dreaming. Followers, on the other hand, are people who are like, you go innovate and you give me instructions or just give me instructions and I'll do what you say. Applied imagination is a slider between these things. And I take creativity and imagination deadly seriously. To me, it's not, yes, you can create beautiful, fanciful things with creativity and imagination, but you can also change the world. You can create better systems. You can create more ethical businesses. You can create more inclusive societies, right? You can really start to apply love and magic to the way we invent, the way we create, and we can stop settling for less, but it takes a lot of discipline. And I think it's that discipline and that critical thinking that people don't want to do. Now, I also think we need to get more pragmatic about the fact that not everyone is going to put in the time to do that. But we need leaders who understand the value in that so that the people who are willing to put in the time are the ones who are giving instructions to the people who aren't putting in the time. We need to tell a better story about the systems that we're building, the societies, the connections between people. We're here. We may as well go deep and go hard and, and create to the absolute edges of our capacity. And most of the time we don't. Yeah, that's awesome. And we need to stop settling. And if our imagination is going to get us there, then I'm all in favor of it. That's that's awesome. So that's a perfect place for us to stop on a very high and, and inspired note. That's going to get our imagination going, continuing it going and, and get it for those who aren't using it, they'll get it to use it more. Um, so I want to get to Off the Dome, which is just a, a few questions. I think I have three or four questions that are just first thing that comes to mind, all right? Mm-hmm. So the first one is, what is the essential must-have item to be all you can be in the imagination age? What's the one thing you need? Focus. Even if you're letting yourself have an adventure, focus on the adventure. Okay, fair enough. If anyone in history could be a mentor to you, who would it be and why? Isabella d'Esta. She was the first lady of the Italian Renaissance, and she was an absolutely brilliant diplomat, scholar, matriarch, art collector, 
just absolutely brilliant and a very deep thinker. Okay. If Science House was a reality show, what reality show would it be? Well, it's funny you ask that because I often say Science House should be a reality show. And I think then the reality show would just be Science House. <laughs> it, it deserves its own category as a show. I think it does. Yes, actually. All right. And our, our last off the dome, if you can choose one of these two options, you can go back in time and meet your ancestors or go into the future to meet your descendants which one would you choose? I have actually chosen ancestors. I think we don't put a lot of time into the ancestors. We think about the future, but I've spent many years connecting with the ancestors. So, Okay. Awesome. I like that answer because I, I always say that if you're going to understand the future, you got to go to the past. A lot of our lessons are already there. That's awesome. Now we're going to get to the last, the last segment of the show, which is the drop. You know, we're I'm going to give a drop. You could give a drop. The drop can be anything that you think would be of, of value or useful or funny or interesting to our listeners. So I can go first or you can go first, whichever one you prefer. You go first. Okay. My drop is a, is a book that I actually just got. So I haven't gotten that deep into it, but it's been a book that I've wanted for a long time. It finally came and I have started it and I already know it's going to be awesome. So my judgment of it was confirmed upon its arrival. And it's called The Human Organization of Time by mm -hmm. Alan G. Blue Dorn. It's marketed as a textbook, but it, it doesn't read like a textbook. And it really talks about time as this non-static idea. As much as we like to think about it being linear, it's, it's not. And there's a lot of philosophy and politics and things around time. And I've always tried to argue these points, but not... I felt it, but didn't really understand it. And so I'm using this to help me understand it better. Um, so that's, that's my drop. You that sounds fantastic. Yeah, so far it's good. I highly recommend, hence it's a drop. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right, I'm going to check that out. So your drop is? My drop is a book called Finite and Infinite Games by James Kars. And similar to your drop, it just kind of helped me think very differently about, so a finite game has winners and losers, rules, it's time boxed. An infinite game is played just for the sake of keeping people playing. And I am 100% infinite gamer. I understand you can play a finite game while you're playing an infinite game, but you should always be thinking about the infinite game. And I, so my drop is, Finite and Infinite Games by James Cars. That's that sounds awesome too. I'm gonna to add that to I'm gonna add that to my list. So that that drop really resonated with me. This has been awesome. I loved it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure having Rita J. King join me on the Deep Dive. You can listen to the Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.